This is the Catholic Movie Guy Podcast. You all heard her. It's the Catholic Movie Guy Podcast, the best podcast in the history of human existence, recorded from my office. Uh, today's kind of a special podcast because it's about a special movie, Room, the 2015 movie starring Brie Larson. Um, that was my favorite movie of 2015 and is going to be the first in a series of best of 2015 movies. We did best of 2016, of course, but I got to thinking most of my listeners probably like to watch movies from their couch. They don't like to pay to go out, pay for a babysitter. So I'm going to focus in my best of 2015 series uh, in the coming weeks because these movies are basically all available uh, from streaming services like Amazon Prime, which Room is, Netflix, whatever, that you can just get from your couch. You don't have to leave. Um, so today's movie is also kind of special, and today's kind of special because it's the anniversary of the death of my father. And um, this movie is very significant to me in light of that uh, because it's a movie that it's about the it's about a mother and a son relationship, but it's really about parental love. And you know, watching it, I can't help but think about how much I owe to my parents. And I uh, thought it was very appropriate today to, to focus on that. And I hope that um, before you listen to the podcast, it's um, it's really important if you're at all interested and you think this that you're up to it. This movie is very intense uh, emotionally. But you should watch the movie before you listen to the podcast because you, you won't be able to watch the movie in the same way if you know what happens. So I encourage you to, to seek out if you should watch it. And if you should, please do. And then listen to the podcast. And uh, hopefully you'll get a lot out of it from our discussion with... Uh, my special guest today. So we are back on the Catholic Movie Guy podcast, and unfortunately for the masses, the Tim Man doesn't watch new movies, so we have to bring in the heavy hitters. Isn't that right, Mr. Professor, the Master, Bo Bonner? Yeah, you know, I think it's kind of unfair. You have me watch movies that are brutal and, like, make me shiver in a corner after watching, and if Tim Man goes and watches the crappiest flick that comes up on cable TV, you have emergency podcasts for him. <laughs> well, yeah, you know, he's, uh, he's, he's one of these delicate geniuses, so you have to roll out the red carpet for him no matter what, you know, <laughs> what he's watched. But, uh, yeah, I mean, the only movie that makes me cower in the corner and shiver is uh, The Sound of Music. Oh yeah, I've, I've yeah, like I said, I've I've caught up on uh, uh, you all of your stuff and heard you and the movie gal, and I think uh, I I like a few more musicals than you do, which actually sort of surprises me. So that was that was kind of um, informing. But I have not watched um, La La Land, or as I like to point uh, call it, um, First Loser to Moonlight. <laughs> I was gonna say putative best picture La La Land. <laughs> I, I have I, I just want to touch on that very briefly. I, I did not see Moonlight, so I'm not going to comment on it. But uh, I think the rule should be, you know, if if fate intervenes and you announce a different winner, that's just the winner. I don't think it's right. I think I think that's just that's it. You know, it's like hey, the the the, the cookie crumbled. La La Land won. I don't care what the vote was. That's that would be my rule for the yeah. Well, I I mean we do that when you have tests. If you accidentally you know screw up and they find out later that you didn't count off for when you should it's not like 
a student would let you then mark the paper off. So I'm with you. That makes exactly. sense. Or at least it should be like a co-MVP situation. They should both get the trophy. Because, I mean, that's, that's just, right. that's just cruel co- punishment. <laughs> Co-MVP. I like that. <laughs> they actually, I believe, and uh, people could check this if they care, which they certainly don't, but I think there have been co-winners in the past, so it's not unprecedented. But, well, uh, uh, yeah, I mean, I think... Uh, so uh, uh, Bud, the professor, couldn't make it today. He hadn't seen room... But uh, his theory is that this was all just part of the script and they meant to do it. So If that is true, I, I do respect them, of course. Um, I'm all for, you know, like ruining people's lives uh, for, for ratings, so that's good. Right. I mean, that's, that's basically the whole podcast, me and the Tim Man, ruining lives yeah. for ratings. Um, so, yeah, as you mentioned, our, our film for today is Room, which is a 2015 film that got a lot of Academy Award buzz, and uh, it was my favorite film from 2015, which I don't think was the most popular opinion, but it was in the discussion. I think it got nominated but did not win, much like La La Land. Uh, and, and like you said, it's, it could not be more different from La La Land in that. No. <laughs> uh, and I'm gonna I'm gonna give the proviso up front. No, you know, go watch the movie. I think it's on Amazon Prime right now. Is that right? Um. Uh, I don't know. I got it from Redbox. Okay. No, from the library. From it's the easily library. attainable. Yes, and, easily. Um, I think it's on Amazon, but either way, go watch it. Uh, I'm going to spoil the heck out of it because it's not really a plot-driven movie, so everything's out the window. Basic plot is it's a, a woman who goes by the name of Ma throughout the movie and her son, and they are abducted when she is uh, a teenager, I guess. Right? Do you know how, exactly how old she was? You watched it more recently than I did. I think she's supposed to be, uh, yeah, like eight, 17 or 8, yeah, 17, 17, I think. Okay, so she's abducted by this guy they call Old Nick, and he, he keeps keeps her and uh, in the room and fathers a child with her, and the child's name is Jack, and he grows up in this room. It's like, it's it's a, you find out later in the movie, it's a, basically a fortified shack in the guy's backyard, and this is the only um, existence this kid knows for the, I could say, about half the movie. Right. And maybe a little more. And then at some point, through ingenious means, after failed attempts, they do escape. And the rest of the movie is about how you live life after undergoing that event. So a lot of the themes of the movie, I think because of the the lack of a reliance on the plot, like the, the, the room becomes a metaphor for like almost all of human existence. Right. And of you know from from how how we learn about things, how we love one another, how we learn about you know our immediate surroundings in a tactile way, how we learn about things broader than what we can see, and how we go from being a child to a man. And then in the second half of the movie, it's about how we you know deal with um, I guess tragic events or that painful transition, which is more painful obviously in this case uh, from what we used to be or do to what we have to do going forward. So obviously these provide a lot of um, grist for the mill of a Catholic discussion of what's important about the film. Did you, I mean, when you were watching it, what what, what was your initial take? What were you feeling as you were watching? Well, so the initial take were very visceral. And I, you know, I suppose there's some strange things where when it, when it's a movie and it's about children and you know, sometimes you're just watching it and you're like, Oh, it's a movie and there's children in it. But then sometimes you just find yourself really being a dad watching a movie. Mm -hmm. And so that first whole first part of the movie, 
I just felt like breathless the entire time. And let me tell you the most excited that I found myself, not that I like got excited, that I just almost was in disbelief about how excited and relieved I was. I want to give an Academy Award to uh, the police officer that yes. figured out where yes. he where he was. Um, and I can tell you that in like a living, breathing, it was reality since. Like I was so cheering for her and like, come on, you know, figure it out. I mean, and so the movie is able to really grasp, you know, the the sort of, um, you know, sp- splendor and, and and shock of it. Uh, they capture that so well that in a movie that almost nothing happens, there's a g- good part of it that you're on your seat, as it were. And uh, I just was amazed that a movie could do that when it really mostly takes place indoors. You know what I mean? Yeah, I I, I did want to. Yeah, exactly. And when I I've been wanting to podcast about this, this is one of those movies that made me want to do a podcast because. I, you know, and I say, I don't want to be hyperbolic, but I, I don't remember ever being emotionally affected by a movie in the same way as I was by this. I, I saw this, like, you know, because I'm a loser, I saw this by myself in a movie theater because I, I can't get the Catholic movie gal out of the house all the time, whatever. Right. And, you know, when I watch it in the theater, I'm usually a little more guarded in my reactions because there's other people there and you're in, you're in some sense you're out in public or whatever. But, I mean, I was just bawling like a baby. Um and I was through that whole first half of the movie just so tense, and I yes. honestly had no idea whether they would get out or not, or whether one would get out or not. It was it was almost like Breaking Bad level of intensity of like what's going to happen next, combined with this incredible emotional resonance. And I I don't know if I would react the same way if I didn't have you know a child, but I do, and I, it, I, it shows the love of a, a parent for a child in a way that I hadn't seen before. Well, and one of the things the director does just in terms of, you know, how well they filmed it and the good story writing is when you're thinking, like when the mother is on screen and her concern, um, like one of the best acting jobs that I've seen in a long time, you know, from uh, Brie Larson, Mm -hmm. you know, it it was Hitchcock-level claustrophobic. Yes. Like the entire movie, the screen felt like it was choking you. But then you immediately jump cut to the kid dreaming and, and expressing on screen, like, you know, usually stream of conscience. I'm really worried about it, you know, because I've been ruined by how much I hate James Joyce and things like this. But oh, hey, you know, I, his... I took a I took a beat poetry class, so you, you don't have to you don't have to tell me about stream of conscience. <laughs> but but the sort of realistically imagining what like a a a precocious, dreamy, you know, five year old like speaking to himself and narrating you know his you know metaphysics of the world you know like that whole scene where he's trying to figure out what's real and what's only on tv um on one hand completely frightening because you realize oh my gosh that's what this kid thinks is real but on another it's one of the best movies i think about trying to get inside the mind of a kid and i just can't believe that it's this sort of truncated dire circumstance Mm -hmm. that makes you stop and go oh yeah kids really do probably you know, I don't remember myself, but probably do sit and go, okay, well, this belongs in this category and this belongs in the other. And just the circumstances just really draw that out and make it really precise. And the, the juxtaposition of those two things, like you said, just so tense, leaves you so breathless. Yeah, and and, and as you were saying, like, it's so funny because to this poor woman who is abducted, who knows, you know, the grandeur of, of the outside world... 
this room is like you know it's confining and stifling and uh, you know it makes her do things that she would never have imagined she could do and and I mean it's horrible you know and you can see that um, without her ever like really truly losing it in front of the kid she conveys all of that through her through her acting but to the kid it's like this room is is the entire universe and you know like when when Christ says to become his little children I think that's exactly the kind of thing he's getting like to to this kid the mouse coming in through a hole in the wall might as well be like an angel descended from heaven that's right. how he views it as a gift the television like a, a cartoon on TV is a gift and 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 incites him to to joy and and to wonder and it's just it's a beautiful thing about how children can thrive with you know just being trapped with one person in this you know six by ten maybe room and they and they're perfectly content and happy I think that there's a lesson in that for all of us and I think even Jack teaches the kid teaches his mom how to deal with the circumstance through his joy in the room you know and again what I find most impressive with this movie is how it's able to do two things at the same time with the same sort of source material. So on the one hand, where I think you're exactly right, that this movie uh, is really, like you said, this sort of peon to like how kids can be content with anything. Mm-hmm. It's also like one of the best modern adaptations of Plato's cave metaphor that yeah. I've seen <laughs> in a long time. Yep. Not so much that like Jack is unhappy, but because that scene where Jack gets out and the entire world just makes him real, like he doesn't know what to do. Mm-hmm. Like I, I, I think I, I would almost want to show that to my philosophy students from here on out and say, this is how jarring play, you know, Socrates says it is to go from ignorance to learning and why so many people hate it, right? Like the fact that he wanted to go back to room, room was comfortable to him. Mm-hmm. And, you know, the cave is comfortable to people. So it's crazy that at the same time, Jack can make us go, oh, right, the simplicity children, awe and wonder. It's also sort of this lesson about the cave and, and why it's so hard to deal with reality as it is. And, and they do both of those things. Another one it does is like, you know, the like sort of telescoping nature where it's like you're looking at the telescope and you mm-hmm. turn it around and look at the other end. When she's in the room, um, Joy, the mom, seems like this wise sage almost, right? Like, She's thinking about, you know, how to how to make her kids survive. And she seems so full of years because she's so exhausted and all of these things. But then she gets out of the room and she's up in her old high school room and looking at her old friends. And she couldn't look more like a young 20 something who lost her ability to be a kid. And just how the movie can pull that off with framing and acting I mean, it, I really am with you. I, I think it's hard to imagine a movie in 2015 that just did the work of a movie better in that regard. Yeah, and and, w- and when you say that, the, w- her going back to her high school, that, the thing I thought of uh, is like I, I'm sure you've seen the Shawshank Redemption, right? Right. Yes. But like where they get they get so comfortable on the inside. At first, it's a punishment, and then it becomes like their salvation in a way. They 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 become masters of of that domain. And it's impossible to transition again back to the to the real world, and yes. I think that's a lesson for all of us. That I mean, there's nothing she could do about it. She's a victim, obviously, but yeah, it's like room room can be your iPhone. Room can be uh, you know like whatever illicit activity you've you're in the rut in. It's like you can't see past it uh, to to the broader picture and and do things that you used to be able to do. It's it's like you know sin darkens the intellect, in the same way. Um, 
the and these these things are not her sin, but the effects of someone else's sin and the consequences right. for her have limited her ability to you know be fully human in in the normal way. Uh, no, I think that's exactly right, and sort of um, the the sort of ramifications of um, how you see reality. Um, this movie is another great catalyst to make people think about how only just small changes in how we do things can make you think the world is a completely different place. Mm -hmm. And, I mean, not to hammer uh, with too heavy of a hammer, but if you can imagine people talking about in you know theology ways like about the liturgy or something like this, it's not too far of a stretch to say you might think this one action, you know, kneeling, at an altar rail, for instance, is is piddly and doesn't matter, mm -hmm. but the ramifications of small things are, are more than you can really fully understand. And this movie, I mean, of course, it's very stark, and like this doesn't happen to everyone. All those caveats in place, it's a real lesson in how only small things need to change and the world is completely different to you. And that's not just for the kid. Um, that's obviously for the mom, but that's also for uh, Joy's parents, you know, who have have been have lost their child for seven years and didn't know what was happening and you know the the world is seven years different after they get out and that's another thing um it's like time traveling and uh she's jolted uh joy is jolted by this discontinuity and uh again this movie is a great catalyst to make you think about these pretty difficult questions yeah i i agree and i actually i was going to make a similar point about uh, the liturgy it's like it's not so much that, I mean, the church is beset by problems on all sides right now. I think we can agree on that. But one of the things that it's like, we have since, you know, in the last 50 years or so, and it started before then, we have like self-imposed a room on ourselves on Catholicism right. where we have knowledge of all these other things handed down to us in this much greater picture, this transcendent you know, world, universe of salvation. And we're like limiting ourselves to things that may be true, and maybe okay, you know, you have enough to live on, you have enough to to uh, to sustain yourself barely, but you're like intentionally uh, losing slowly all your knowledge of this greater picture because of this um, self-imposed, you know, space. No, and, I think maybe that's the best metaphor I can think of is like how we deal with our literature and art mm -hmm. is like we're watching a TV that's not completely in focused and it's all our own choosing. That's exactly. a great way to put it. Yeah, we're watching a TV. There's only three channels. The reception's through the antenna. Sometimes it comes in and out, and we can't. We just can't move outside that little space. Right. Yeah, and and, and the thing, of course, in this movie was totally unintentional. Nothing you can do about it. And we've done it, you know, through folly. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. Um, and again, that goes back to this whole point about which is you know a linguistic theory. It's pretty you know commonly accepted. Not that we can't learn if we don't have a word for something or that our words 100% limit us, but definitely that our environment shapes and, and, our, and what we can describe by interacting with that environment through communicating in words limits our ability to think in and of itself about things that we can't immediately interact with. So, like, he can't really understand. To him, room means universe, right? It doesn't mean right. one space in a building, in a city, in a country, in a, on a globe, you know, nothing. And in the same way, because we are, we have intentionally kind of, not just we in the church, but we as modern Western man have intentionally jettisoned 
ourselves and you know so much of what we what we learned and, and locked ourselves in a room we're having difficulty even understanding not just where we came from but what we're doing now and where we're supposed to go going forward well um yeah so this reminds me of uh Joseph Bottom, he used to write for First Things, and people like Murray Doan, I don't really care, but I, I follow him on Facebook. He had a similar point, but with the Bible, he points out, he, he, he says this is a semi-serious point he makes, that every language um, finds certain books of the Bible that translate into it better than others. Mm-hmm. And so he points out that the French have always thought they've had the superior translation of Job. Of course, and, weirdly and, every, enough, and everything else. Yeah, yeah, well, particularly Job. And, but no, like, so Job shows up in French literature all over the place because it just, it seems like Job is a very natural thing to speak. As a French person, um, for Martin Luther and his German, it was, you know, really, you know, like the letters of St. Paul. And in English, he goes, you know, Ecclesiastes and the, the, uh, work of John really stands out. And, um, now whether you think he's right about any of these particularly or whatever, I do think there's something to that, though, because it is weird when you start talking with people in other countries that certain books of the Bible seem to take more prominence in like their literature. Mm-hmm. And I think that's part of it is because I don't know what it is. I don't know if it's some magic sauce about our languages, you know, particularly. But it does seem like we really do have some things that we speak better than about others. And uh, so, you know, he's just using this example of the Bible. But I think the the movie itself shows that. Whatever a rat or a mouse is um, to a kid who lives in a room is really a different thing than someone who lives out on the farm or something like this. Yeah, and I mean, and this is, this goes back to just fallen humanity and the Tower of Babel and all that, right? Like, of course, we we none of us is going to be able to to interact or describe, you know, the universe and and, and not just the temporal realm but the spiritual realm perfectly. Uh, even in a human sense, because we all have different abilities, we have different gifts, like St. Paul says. And, and uh, another thing I do like about this is that uh, if you show this as an example, you know, this isn't blatant relativism, because the fact is, is there is a world outside of room, right. and the kid has to come to terms with it. However, it can show why people that we think should know better might have an intractable argument with us. Like, they've literally not seen outside the room of their language and when they do, they're not going to ha- be able to make sense of it. And I actually think this is really important to think that if we're talking about things like evangelization, we don't have to like go full bore certain in cultural theories that you know certain Jesuit colleges like to throw out. But we do have to say, if people are listening to you and they don't get it, that might be because they have not seen enough of the world, quote, outside of their room uh, to be able to follow along and uh, the patience necessary to talk across these things. Exactly. And, and, yeah, so I think that first half of the movie is really one of the, the finest. I mean, I mean it's, just, it's engrossing. It's emotionally resonant. It, ha- it, it helps you make, you know, these broader points about the world. It's great. But I, I, I want to talk now about what happens after, because it, this movie reminds me of another movie that is in its own way and much different, much more content problematic movie that kind of has its climax to me in the middle of the movie which is full metal jacket uh Uh, and we don't have to talk about that directly but in this movie you know they get out of the room and there's still like an hour left of the movie in a lesser movie you know like this movie would have just ended with them getting out of the room and that's that's it you know hey and and they live happily ever after and i read a review in the new york times i forget the reviewer's name at the moment but she basically said, you know, it's this really engrossing movie for for the first half, 
and then it turns into this dreary platitudinous affair for the rest of the movie. What? And, yeah, and I and I could not disagree more because I think that's part of what makes this movie great is that it doesn't just let you get away with oh good Ma and Jack got out they're they're gonna be fine. No, yeah. actually they have to slog through existence now with the the traumatic events that happened to them and the you know the I mean they're they're far behind where they should be as 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 human beings because they've been stunted in growth by seven years and Jack obviously in a completely traumatic and different way. Um, and I, I, I like that the movie makes you face that for the last hour. You don't just get away happy, you know? Well, and, I mean, where, I know you don't want to go into the whole, <laughs> you don't want to relive Full Metal Jacket episode of the podcast. Um, <laughs> one thing I do think is important, both with Full Metal Jacket and this, is if there was a way that you could run the two sections of the movie, si- like simultaneous, not so much minute per minute, but scene by scene, I think on purpose both directors have made it that you know the different parts correspond to each other now mm, with, with full metal that, yeah. jacket full metal jacket i'm actually arguing with myself i need to watch it again whether it's like the you know 1a and 2a are matched up or if it's more for full metal jacket it might be like starts in a ends in b starts b2 ends with a2 Got it. but with this movie it clearly is a1 and b1 match up b2 a2 and b2 match up because the second part of the movie, they re-enter, so to speak, a new cave. There's a middle part of the of the movie that's just, you know, jubilation. It's just very happy, you know, and like he's disoriented and all the like. The sort of middle of the movie is like the action, right? Like so, he gets out, they go to the hospital. Mm-hmm. But the the last part of the movie lines up with her, so to speak, Joy getting, as you will, kidnapped again, kidnapped by. Uh, the difficulties of this world like you're talking about and then they sort of go through uh, to a new you know being released and it, so much so that she even says you saved me again right so we're supposed to parallel the two times that Jack has saved his mom right and so I you know I, I think um, a New York re- uh, someone who reviews movies in a national uh, feature like that who says something so ridiculous should be fired that's just an <laughs> option I'm throwing out I'm fine um, with firing everyone at the New York Times. Yeah. I think it was the New York Times. So there you go. But but the second thing is, gee whiz, what a flat read of the movie. Yeah. I mean, I have my own problem with a certain scene we can talk about we're, later. Yeah, we're we're going there, don't worry. Yeah, but but I really do think that you can't have this movie without the second part. Oh, I, otherwise, I think you whole... could. It just wouldn't be any good. No, I don't think you could even name it Room. Then I know that sounds ridiculous. But Room makes sense after you watch the second part of the movie, and especially when he goes back. And how they film the thing to make it look infinitely bigger and smaller. I mean, they should have just won a technical award for that. I don't know if they did or not. Um, but yeah, what a what a shallow review she was. <laughs> yeah, I mean, and, and another, another thing that I... I mean, I think there's a lesson for us in the second half of the movie... In because you, know, you know we experience life our our liturgy goes in cycles our lives go in cycles we have moments of triumph and then you're dredging through again and then you have a failing and then you you have to pick yourself up again there's no there's no happily ever after for room and and more to the I mean she comes out and you know obviously she's she's kind of a broken person her son is is behind the eight ball but also her family is in disrepair I don't know if it's because she got kidnapped or if it would have happened anyway. But her parents are divorced. Her mom's with someone new. You know, it's just, it's not perfect at all. 
But I think, you know, whether she had been um, she had been kidnapped or not, no one's life is perfect, and we all have to, to deal with the fact that room, room's not perfect and the outside world's not perfect. Right. Ro- <laughs> My wife watched it with me, and the only problem she had is uh, she thought the guy who played Leo, she was so distracted by how, quote, creepy he looked, she thought he was going to do something to the mom <laughs> or kid. Really? And then it tur- yeah, and then it turns out, that guy did this Tom McCamu or whoever who played Leo. He actually originally tried out for old Nick, you know, the guy who yeah, uh, yeah. kidnaps and rates joy. And my wife was like, that makes perfect sense. They should have casted him. So. See, this is a good example. Too much knowledge is ruining this now. I'll never be able to look at it the same way again. I was totally well, innocent. I was in my little room, you know. He was just a nice guy. <laughs> now I'll never be able to think about it again. That's funny. <laughs> yeah, but I mean, just you know, just being able to 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 be able to to learn to live and love with you know imperfect people and imperfect situations over and over again, I mean, that's that's the the long defeat that we fight in Catholicism, you know. Well, and another way too is that you know, and again, get to the point later, but they were brilliant to make it where he, you know, uh, Jack really needed to to be away from his mom to grow like he did. Um, and that, that was going to be the thing that, how will you ever do that if she never, you know, tries to kill herself and gets put in the, into the hospital, but he had to have that break because as long as they were, you know, essentially symbiotic because of the room, they would always have that relationship was in the room. And like one of the more heartbreaking parts is when, you know, like she's basically been breastfeeding him the entire time. They Mm -hmm. they make a point to show Mm -hmm. this out. And, you know, for for many reasons, right, like that, I mean, actually, I should be careful because I know there are people who think you should breastfeed your kid as long as they want to eat. So at any rate, that aside, most people, most people watching that would go, oh, this is indicative of a relationship that has stayed in an earlier stage and hasn't grown. Right. But um, but it's also at the same time, again, this movie does it great, an image of her nurturing nature that even now she would still give everything you know, to, to feed him. Um, when she gets back and he wants to, you know, breastfeed again, and she basically says, I, I, I don't have any more milk. This will never happen again. You know, it's really sad, but it was also like this really important moment that had to happen for them to both live as if the room was behind them. Yeah. And, uh, I, I thought again, like what a, what a really heartbreaking way to show that, but a powerful way to show that something had changed. That's why it's one of one of my favorite movies because like I'm just emotionally affected not just you know that it, it's sentimentalist because it isn't but it 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 resonates because it's true like every parent goes to that I'm going through it with my kids now I went through it with my older kids that they're at a certain age and they're just so cute and they love you and you almost don't you, you know you have this desire that they not grow up that they be frozen in time but you know rationally that that's you know the exact opposite of what a good parent's supposed to want and do you're right. supposed to to help them develop so that they don't need you anymore it's it's a selfish impulse to to want in this attachment for to go on forever and that you know that's like going back to the gospel whoever you know uh, whoever abandons father or mother you cannot be so attached to someone that you lose sight of uh you know what what the what the natural uh, order of things requires and what god asks of you and all these little traumas that you go through growing up, leaving the, your room and it, you know, leaving the room in the movie, leaving your your bedroom at home, you know, leaving your parents, 
you know, having a spouse, having children, having to leave your children, having to leave perhaps, you know, your spouse at the end of your life. All those things are so distilled and and made poignant in this movie and I just I think they did such a such a great job. No, I yeah, I agreed completely. Now, that being said, I love this movie. I love it. You had a problem with the scene in the movie and that means we have a problem, okay? So we're going to have it out right now. The scene in the movie that, according to you, you had a problem with, and I understand it, so I'm going to let you explain. I'm going to let you finish, Taylor. Is uh, the, it, it, At some point, she decides to like go on one of these Dateline or 2020-type shows, and she's interviewed about her experience, right? Right. And... Well, so, yeah, I mean, to me, one thing I want to immediately say, like my initial reaction, I've backed off a little, not completely. Um, I will admit that I sort of missed... The first time that this was at the behest of their lawyer because they thought they needed money. I admit that I just didn't see that part, right? But lawyers, lawyers. Yeah, right. You guys. Yeah. But evidently, the lawyer basically says that we need to do this so that we can afford to basically put old Nick in the slammer. And, you know, that changes it a little bit, although I still think the movie was really trying to say, you know, because, like, this, this happens after. Um, uh, Joy and her mom have a big screaming match, which in a, I mean it was obviously probably going to happen just because of the dire circumstance. Mm-hmm. Um, and then you know because within the scene like they're having this interview with the woman for TV, and you kind of go over and look at the mom, and there's supposed to be this like idea that like you know the mom just wanted to protect her but can't. But here's the deal. So yeah, she goes through. She has this interview, and the woman asks insane questions. She does. She does. That if 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 anyone cared about Joy while she was answering that, I think you're allowed to knife that woman who asks such heartless questions yeah. Yeah, no. to a young she, woman who went through, like, hell. Yeah, she's she's the embodiment of the justness of the death penalty right there. I mean, and so to me, it was so jarring as to be... You know, and what I was impressed by this movie is both in the sort of Diff, like the insanity of what happened to her, her being kidnapped, but then also in the sort of dreamlike world of Jack, it always seemed believable. You you sort of left your uh, critical eye card at the door, and usually I, I have trouble with this and like pointing out plot holes and stuff like that a little too much, but with this movie, was more than willing to do so. But this thing was nuts. I mean, I know that you could have a fight with your daughter and be mad because it was an emotionally wrought uh uh, time in your life, but I think you step up and tell that woman to shut up and leave your house, A. And then B, no one, like, vetted the questions. The woman straight out asked her, D- why didn't you give up your child when he was an infant? You Were, were you being selfish when you kept him? Now, f- first of all, let's, first of all, that woman <laughs> had been through hell. I'm not expecting her to make any great judgments, right? I mean, like, gee whiz, she was just a, a teenager who had been put into that position. But second, even rationally speaking, old Nick is not necessarily a man of his word. Yeah. No. <laughs> so you, you're going to give a baby and go like, I trust you to take this baby instead of like, you know, throwing him the dumpster or something like that. So, so, so I, I totally get your points. May I give my apology? Well, let me do one last. Right. Uh oh, there's more. Right yeah, the, the last point is that, my, and the, maybe this is like the problem watching the movie with my wife, is that 
this is would almost all be forgivable, but there was such another easy plot thread that could have caused her to commit suicide that you don't know why they didn't do it. And that's like, okay, so the dad, like, so Joy's dad won't look at Jack because he just can't take, like, he can't see his grandson and think without thinking about the man who kidnapped. So, so he literally, mm-hmm. it's William H. Macy. You think we're going to be in for some good old William H. Macy. And then he never shows up in the movie again. Mm-hmm. And you think like, all she's got to do is call and have a very terrible conversation with William H. Macy. And she would probably be believable that she tried to kill herself and end up in the hospital. And, and so my wife and I were like, you know, those are two plot things that we were like, you could solve them so easy. Why do you want to have that? what I think is almost frankly over the top media engagement. But now we're going to hear your apology. So I'm ready for you to wrap the mu- the movie in a nice little bow. So, uh, so I do not, I mean, I, I see all points. However, I can't really, I can't fully agree. I do agree. It's unlikely that that would happen conceded, but I don't believe it's impossible because I've watched too many of those Dateline shows and I hear how they treat people on those shows now, I think at your point of, like, someone would have intervened because Joy and the mother, they wouldn't have allowed that to happen. That's stronger. But as far as being asked, I don't have a huge problem because I think they are that uh, willing to exploit people. But that's the that's the way lesser apology. The, the main point is I think that it's a device and not in a way that, you know, I don't want to come close to, like, Tommy Lee Jones and No Country for Old Men, the Tim Man argument. Like, this is, right. a, this is a physical manista- manifestation of a, a mental state. But okay. I think it's designed to be uh, a stand-in, a, I think a believable one, more or less, you think less, of Joy's own questioning of herself and what she did. And I think that that's important in the movie because I think, well, it's something that I struggle with. I'm not as confident as, say, you know, the Tim man or or the master, maybe, in, <laughs> in the correctness of my own actions. And I think it's just constant, you know, even though she clearly in an objective way didn't do anything wrong because of circumstance and the traumatic nature of it she she cannot forgive herself and she's constantly questioning whether what she did was right and i think this interview is simply a way to manifest through someone else's question what she's already questioning herself and that's why she commits suicide not so much that this lady did it but that that's what's going through her all the time attempt suicide she doesn't succeed yeah excuse me did i say commit attempt yeah yeah she committed to it it didn't work out um yeah so i think that's why it was in there and i think it it makes sense to me, and, and I think that the point it's trying to make about even when you haven't done something wrong, when you're a part of something that is so evil, even not not voluntarily, you, living with that is, is difficult, and you almost can't forgive yourself. I mean, it's cliched now because we want, you know, we tell people to forgive themselves for really horrible things, but I think in a true sense, it's hard to forgive yourself even when you've done nothing wrong. Yeah, see, I agree with your initial aspect about, like, you need an exterior manifestation of that. But that makes me double down on the dad conversation. I don't know if there's like a, maybe there's an extended, you know, scene that shows where he shows up more or something like this. But I, I mean, I remember thinking like halfway through the movie, uh, halfway through the second part, I should say, that like, I, I can't believe we're not going to hear more from the dad. And you can imagine him asking the same thing. Like, why didn't you do that? You're being selfish. And then he could have added like, and even more so, you know, this, this is a reminder of him and, you know, all these things like this. Yeah. Uh, but I, 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 your point is right. Like there needs to be an exterior manifestation. Um, I, I just, you know, I w- the the dad scenario seems more realistic to me. But I'm not going to ding the movie 
uh, nearly as much as I wanted to when that scene was going on. Part of it was I was so angry at the woman, I personally wanted Got to it. get into the movie and and caused problems. Yeah, I think I think you're right. It might have been better if the dad had done it, but I don't really care about it enough to, to, to ding it. And also, whenever I love something, I think it's so worthwhile, I'm willing to forgive like things around the margins that perhaps weren't perfect, but it, it didn't bother me in the same way. In any event, I think we both agree. A very, very worthwhile uh, movie. Uh, uh, the good way out uh, way outweighs the bad, and a lot of important things to say and to help us think about our understanding of life and of the faith, even. So, yes. what is what is your overall rating, Mister Master, Bo Bonner? Uh, Out of ten, nine, nine rats. Wow, nine, nine rats. rats. Nine rats. Yeah, I think nine and a half if that plot hole didn't exist. But nine rats. Strong. I'm going to give this movie a full 10 out of 10 Dateline special interviewers out of 10. I mean, it was <laughs> it was great. I thought it was I it was my favorite movie of that year, and as you know, I see quite a few of them. And uh, it's one of my favorite movies of all time because of, of how it affected me. It hit all the boxes. It's beautiful. It's true. It's good. And it you know it, it's emotionally resonant. I think it, it's just great. So I encourage everybody out there to watch it. And uh, I'm very thankful that I had someone who's willing to watch something of some substance and not just yeah. a sports movie. Yeah, it's no Jerry Maguire. Yeah, it's no. I, it is. It is definitely no Jerry Maguire. And I do think that I would say that. I mean, I, that you know, I'm usually not one to warn about movies, but it's a. It is an intense movie. So like, you don't want to watch that if you're going through some of your own crud in life. Maybe pick a more even killed season in your in your life to watch this movie because it is it's intense yes as far as especially as a parent i mean it's it's one of the most emotionally wrenching movies i've watched so yeah i agree with that but uh if you think you're up to it go see it in the meantime that's uh that's pretty much it for this week i don't know when uh when you'll be back bo you got any ideas uh i don't know is there any big uh 2016 2017 movies that you're you're wanting to watch about i was gonna do silence uh but uh, I got I got beat to that one, and yeah. I actually would defend it a lot more than either of you two. So. Uh, now that's why you weren't called to do it. <laughs> uh, no, in all seriousness, the the brewmaster just happened to see it with me, so there you go. But uh, <laughs> all right, well, whatever it is, until then, take care. All right, take care.